Your whole life is breaking my silence. <laughs> and another thing. <laughs> Your whole life is like, I'm not going to talk about this thing. I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. Five minutes later, you guys know what? <laughs> can't believe I have an audience that I get to say, hey guys, uh, shout out to my mom. She's probably the only one that's going to listen to this. Uh, welcome to Let's Talk for Reels. Get it? Wink, wink. Reels. R-E-E-L-S. John said drop the Z because that's just too much. Um, he was probably right, by the way. But, but uh, for today's episode, we're going to be discussing one car wise, sexy, poignant in the mood for love. So first of all, Sam, introduce yourself. Who are you? What do you do? What's your horoscope? Uh, I am a Capricorn. Uh, and <laughs> I am very much actually a Capricorn quite through and through. So uh, astrology is is shocking in some respects and how accurate it can actually, you know, nail a person's personality to their T. Please elaborate more on uh, how you're a true, true Capricorn. Uh, I think that I <laughs> have been, well, not in the past year as much, but in the, in, in my past, I have been quite a, uh, hard driven, hard worker driven person, uh, almost to the, you know, myopic focus of, you know, sometimes not having a personal life, getting a PhD will do that. So, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I have a PhD uh, in political science, very different from, uh, you know, anything related to do with film studies or entertainment or stuff like that. But I have always been invested in this world. I've grown up, uh, you know, extremely, you know, I, I guess you could, could have considered like watching movies and TV to be a hobby of mine. I, to an excessive amount, it's always kind of been like the, the thing that alongside, especially like when I was in grad school and college, uh, it was always the thing that, you know, helped me to decompress uh, from work. Um, but it was always the thing that's been that I've been most passionate about in life is narratives and stories and just really investing in characters. And, uh, you know, and alongside that, I've always been invested in like film criticism, too, and reading it reading a lot about, you know, artists and directors, uh, you know, my, my pastimes are actually just like, you know, watching a lot of interviews with people that, you know, whose artistry I enjoy. So it, you know, kind of makes sense that I've pivoted to, you know, being more invested in this, you know, the, the, these side of my passions, my work with screen spec with you and everyone on our staff has been great. And, Something I've been very happy to have the opportunity to do. So, Sam is being very humble, but she's our managing editor and basically has been with me since the start of this site life journey. Uh, insane fandom moments. Uh, it's just been an, a wild ride, but it's been such a great ride. And I'm happy to have her here on this first episode. I wouldn't have any other film cinephile cinematic experience partner in crime <laughs> than Sam. Yeah, I will say that when you were like texting me, uh, like what what movie should we talk about first? And I was just kind of like, oh, I don't know. I'll think about it. Uh, you were just instantly like, I know, in the mood for love. And I was just like, 
Man, we just like our our brains like have some kind of synergy because that's absolutely perfect for especially for a first episode. I think for your podcast. I mean, I have to agree. All we talk about, I mean, people that follow us on Twitter know that all we talk about is love, the concept of love, especially, you know, that midway point life kind of love, not the young love. I mean, we don't discriminate. Um, well, I guess we do. If if you're young and in love, this podcast is not going to be for you. I'm so sorry. If you were looking for Riverdale takes, <laughs> that's not happening here. Um but yeah, I mean, Sam, in the mood for love, tell me your first time watching it. Was this your first Wong Kar Wai film? And basically, what was your first experience with In the Mood for Love? And kind of tell us what it's about. Well, uh, I'll start, I guess, with what it's about then. So uh, if I get any details wrong, just like jump in and let me know. But, uh, or you can elaborate on, you know, anything that I have to say here. But I believe it takes place predominantly in 1962, right? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Hong Kong. Uh, we have these two, two characters. Um, they are renting rooms and apartments next to each other, I believe. And they come to find out that their, their spouses are having an affair, they're both married. They find out their spouses are having an affair. And then they kind of embark on this. You know, these are both, you know, we see through the visual imagery a lot of this film that they're both kind of isolated, isolated individuals with kind of like these like yearning, budding passions inside of them. Um, and that makes up a lot of the beauty of the film. Um, In tight spaces, too. Yeah, very tight spaces. Rooms are very close together. So the fact that they feel isolated in such tight quarters... Very sexy. Yes. yes, very important to point out the uh, tight framings, tight doorways, uh, tight hallways, uh, both indoors and outdoors really contribute to mm -hmm. kind of like the almost like a kind of like claustrophobic feel in a way. Uh, but yeah, so these two people like end up finding their way to one another and, uh, you know, ha kind of have this friendship that turns into or like a companionship, really. I wouldn't even it's it's a friendship, but it's almost more like a, like these two people just sort of find each other. It's uh, the uh, Our Spouses Cheated on Us club. And yeah. it's just the two of them <laughs> in that club. And what's interesting about them is that you know that they're going to fall in love. Uh, but you can see them really fighting it because they, 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 they repeatedly say at different points that they don't want to be like their spouses. Like mm -hmm. they want to be better than that. Um, because you do have to remember, this does play, take place in 1962. I think there were more conventional ideas about what, you know, husbands and wives and spouses meant to each other. Um, so, you know, so they're sort of bound by those social ideas of, you know, what love is as well and what marriage is and what our duties are to our spouses. Um, but, of course, these two individuals do end up falling in love. Uh, and, you know, at the spoiler alerts, I guess, for the end of the film... Uh, the uh, Tony Leung's character ends up leaving and they kind of have these like passing moments again in the future years. Uh, and, you know, it ends without them being together, which is, you know, we could talk about the sort of like poignancy of that. Um, yeah. What else do you have to add about 
what you think that this movie was about? Well, I always love the challenge of a film that is relatively simple in terms of a narrative. I mean, it's a film that it's two characters interacting in spaces and they have these conversations that sometimes you don't see them speak, you hear it um, through voiceover. And I just, I guess it's like Wong Kar Wai understands kind of how to project the in the inward of a, a singular character into the outward, mm-hmm. which is what makes his films generally beautiful. But, but this one in particular, it's like, it's almost like you can't breathe because these two characters are getting closer as the film just goes on. But you know that it's just not going to end well because like you said, the 60s um, in Hong Kong, you're, you already know that these people are trapped in that specific time. They're trapped in their spaces. They're trapped in their marriages and there's nothing that they can do. So it's like this continuous growth of yearning throughout the film that I think it's either underappreciated now, undervalued, and it's just not something that a lot of storytellers are doing. Um, It's very rare that you get a film like In the Mood for Love now, especially. And even even in television, I think we've like, it's been a weird time in television when it comes to romantic narratives in general. It's like they are either an afterthought or they're um, consider, you know, lowbrow kind of storytelling because I don't know why. I don't know why people are afraid of, you know, romance and love and kind of the hope within the genre. Mm -hmm. So this kind of leads into my question of you in terms of this film and of the things that you watch. I mean, we're going to talk about In the Move for Love, but also like, I feel like the theme of love, what does love mean to you in your own life and also fictionally in the things that you watch? That's a good question. Um, love means so. <laughs> I put you on the spot there. Um, I know it's. I mean, it's such a big question. Because here's here's the here's the big answer is that to me, any good story worth investing in is a love story. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's it's the flea bag thing. Like she looks at the camera and she's like, "This is a love story." That's to me the way I feel about every. Every piece of film or, you know, every TV show that I get really invested in at the end of the day, it is about love stories between characters. And, you know, those that those love stories can take on a lot of different forms. I obviously love, uh, you know, romantic love stories, obviously. Um, but, you know, there's obviously there's there's love stories that are also based like in friendship. Mm-hmm. Uh, love stories about just you know, pure humanity that or the humanity that people can show to one another, the connections that people form in, you know, either across time or at very specific moments in time. Um, all of that is, I think, these, all these different types of love stories and, and especially romantic love stories, um, just because that's in general, you know, sort of what I'm a sucker for. Um, <laughs> They are the reason why I love watching 
narratives and why I love watching films and why I get invested in TV shows. Like, like I could say like the X-Files is my favorite TV show of all time, but you know, I love the sci-fi stuff. I love the horror stuff. But at the end of the day, the reason why I love the X-Files is because I love Mulder and Scully and I love that dynamic that they have. I love Better Call Saul. Uh, the reason, one of the biggest reasons why I do love that show is because I love the dynamic between Kim and Jimmy. Uh, at the end of the day, these are the reasons why I will always gravitate to the things that are, that I would consider to be my favorite pieces of cinema or my favorite TV shows. Um, and I think I gravitated towards that a lot as a, as a teenager, as a young adult, um, just because it was a form of escapism for me, I was kind of a, I was kind of like a reserved kid. I think mm -hmm. that my, how I dreamed or how I, what gave me, I think, like hope for, in humanity, both in like myself and in, you know, other people was, you know, thinking about the way that humans do care for one another, even when, you know, sometimes we're at our worst. But to me, that was, those were sources of hope for me to see the way people could connect and the way that people could be good to each other, even as they were very human and could often be selfish. Um, so In the Mood for Love is a very poignant film for me. Um, you asked previously as well, like when I gave the summary of like, what was my first, uh, you know, how I came to this film or what was my first experience of watching it? I have a certain predilection, I should say, to uh, <laughs> movies and characters or, you know, narratives where at the end of the day, uh, sometimes, you know, they don't end up together or they go their separate ways for different reasons. And uh, as we're recording this, we did just watch uh, The Better Call Saul, uh, ninth episode of the sixth oh, season. Where <laughs> God. Spoilers alerts, uh, you know, Kim and Jimmy break up, basically. Uh, and he transforms into the full, you know, Saul Goodman because of it. Uh, and I think it gave me stories like this where often it is about like either unrequited love or a relationship that does become, you know, f fully realized, but for some reason comes to an end. They mean a lot to me because I do like to think that relationships could be special in a certain time and place, even if they don't last forever. And it doesn't mean that that love wasn't real. It just means that, you know, sometimes people really are kind of ships in the night uh, yeah. and people come into our lives and they give us, you know, some kind of joy or excitement, maybe for a little while. Um, and that's still meaningful, even when that time passes, I think. Uh, because, you know, people are complicated and they do have complicated emotions and, you know, go separate ways for a lot of different reasons. Um, but that doesn't mean that that love isn't real. And I think that that gives me hope in my own life that the relationships that I had that, you know, maybe I'm not in, even in touch with that person anymore. But that doesn't mean that that time and place wasn't, uh, that that person wasn't important to me in that, in that moment in space. Um, and that's what I really feel about In the Mood for Love. I think I like that it acknowledges you know, sort of the humanity of these two different people and the way that they're, they're not able to always, I think, speak very openly about mm -hmm. how they feel. And I think a part of that is, you know, who they are as characters themselves, but it also does have a lot to do with the time and place, um, you know, Hong Kong in 1962. 
Um, and what they do feel that they owe to their respective spouses, even though their spouses are cheating on them. Uh, <laughs> and, you know, we need to talk about that. Put a pin on the idea of somehow feeling this ethical need to honor marriages, even when that person disrespects the marriage or like you feel like you owe them something because you have children with them or you've been with them for X amount of years and stuff like that. But keep going. Yeah, that you bring it up, they don't even have children. So it's not like there's, you know, even that that's holding them together. But I do just find it to be very, very, I, I don't even want to say realistic, but it's just, you know, poignant. And I think real that, you know, it's, I think we, we want to think of all relationships as being like happily ever after, but sometimes they're just not like that. And movies like In the Mood for Love, and I think another, like a great double feature within The Mood for Love is Brief Encounter. You are such a sadist. Uh, don't that's... ever do that. Do not, If you're listening to her, don't watch In the Mood for Love and then think, hmm, let me just watch Brief Encounter. And you know what? Let's triple feature it with Room with a View or like, you know. Remains of the day. Remains of the day. Like, <laughs> you want to just completely go off the rails? That's the three, four films right there for you. Oh, you know what? Why don't we just watch uh, uh, The Bridges of Madison County? I mean, oh my God. No, we can't go even all talk. the way. Uh, there's <laughs> sometimes when I, if you've ever just like had a moment where you want to like cry for some reason. What I'll do is I'll go to YouTube and I will put in that search bar, Bridges of Madison County, ending, car, he's in the truck, I don't know, whatever, it's raining. Rosary, uh, <laughs> necklace, Jesus on the cross, yeah. Just, you know, watch that scene and I will be like bawling hysterically. But anyway, back to uh, In the Mood for Love. <laughs> <laughs> that is, uh, yeah, it's uh, it would make a great double feature with Brief Encounter because I do like these kind of stories where... Especially for married individuals where they, you know, pr probably have expect expectations of, you know, what their life is going to be with this person for the rest of time. They get this, like, creeping moment of there's still, like, this surprise in life or, like, mm -hmm. this, this sudden passion that they feel for another person. Um, you know, they both characters like, you know, kind of remark in this film, like just, they didn't expect to fall in love with each other. And that feels very uh, true to the way I've experienced love. Like, especially when I fell in love with my husband, it was like, it just happens. You can't control it. It's just, you meet someone one day and that's just what it is. It's, it's completely unexpected. You don't go looking for it. It's just something, it's almost like a violent process that happens to you against your will. Um, and I think that's, very accurately captured by like these two people who find that, you know, despite their circumstances, they can't help but uh, fall in love with one another. And hmm. films like In the Mood for Love and Brief Encounter, I think very accurately uh, reflect how that just happens. And it just kind of bowls you over. So, yeah. I will say my grievance, because In the Mood for Love and Brief Encounter they're set in very specific time frames of our culture mm -hmm. that it is easier to romanticize or it is romantic to have this moment and then it's over and like it's unrequited. But then what I find interesting in our culture now is that that's still the paradigm or like the standard for 
older characters in romantic narratives. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, it's still romantic in a way, but it's also like, oh, again, like, oh, we're doing this again. So old people, second chance (laughs) love, you do it, it's over for you. Like, (laughs) count your days because that relationship, something's going to happen. So... So are you saying that you wish that at the end of these movies that they had ended up together or that they had left their spouses? Not all of them. Not all of them. Like, let me tell you, I, there's Catherine Hepburn's Summertime where Mm -hmm. she goes to Italy and she has this Italian romance with a married man who, by the way, he's like gorgeous. Like, anyways, we're going to talk about Tony Long next, um, but... You know, that film, it makes sense. Like, you know, it makes sense that these characters, the narrative is contained within, like, the parameters of, like, we only have this moment and we both know that this is all we're going to have and that's it. But then there's, like, other more modern films or, like, TV shows where, like, you can't apply that same logic and it's no longer romantic and it's more like tragic for the sake of tragedy, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, even with Jimmy and Kim, like, yes, I want them to end up together, but like, it makes sense if they don't, you know? Yeah. Because you're like, oh, Kim, she let go of the one thing that she loved even more than Jimmy, I'd say, is being a lawyer. Yeah. So, like, in the mood for love, it makes sense that these two people just fall for society standards of the time because, like, what are they going to do? Like, oh, divorce your partner and then we end up together and then we have to live with that fallout. And it's logical. Most human beings are going to stick to the status quo. Uh but not everybody feels the same way I do, and I understand that. But I do think we should take a look <laughs> at the way romantic narratives end for younger romances versus older, because we can't conflate the two. So, yeah, I mean, I think that the issue is that there's just not enough overall of these kinds of narratives, enough to balance out, like, you know, yeah. the unrequited with ones where we see that maybe they do end up together in the end. Like, all the ones that we've talked about so far, I do think that those ended, those ended in the way, those narratives ended as they should have. Um, Yeah. There's just too many of them. There's just too many of them, and we need more second love stories, second chance love stories. Second chance love story. Middle-aged love stories, Uh, you know. The, the te- we're not the we're not talking about Riverdale here. This is not what we're doing. We're no, talking, no, we're no. We're talking no. about the old people. <laughs> we're talking we're talking about the old people. This is for old people only. If you're young, <laughs> get out. We don't want you here. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah, but yeah, it's no. just it's like you asked me. Oh, how many movies do you know where um the older couple doesn't end up together? And I can name you ten movies. Mm-hmm. You know, you have like in the mood for love, brief encounter. Cairo Time, The Bridges of Madison County, uh, even like rom-coms, like uh, there's a movie Vera Farmiga did with Andy Garcia and they don't end up together. And it's just like, all right, I'm a little fatigued by like poignancy. Throw me a bone, Jesus. (laughs) Throw me one little bone. (laughs) Doesn't have to be the main characters. Well, you asked me, so now I want to ask you then, what was your 
initial experience with this film. You also asked me if this was my first uh, Wong Kar Wai film, and I think it was because it was his, as far as I knew, his most popular at the time. And it was only after that that I watched uh, like Happy Together and you know quite a few of his other movies. Uh, he's one that I've kind of. I don't think I've seen everything that he's done yet, but I think that he's one that I'm more of a completionist about as far as, uh, you know, filmmakers I love are concerned. Um, so yeah, what was your first experience with this film? So I, I had seen Chunking Express, so I was well-versed in Tony Leung and his <laughs> beautiful, gorgeous eyes. Tony Leung. Tony Leung is like... I don't know if a perfect man exists, but if it does, it's him. It's you Tony. watched a Marvel movie for him. I watched a Marvel movie for this man, and I love the man, but I wouldn't even watch a Marvel movie for him. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, "Wow, he looks sexy in the trailer. I'll, I'll give it a shot." I mean, <laughs> the movie was fine. I'm not. Everybody knows I'm not a huge Marvel fan. I have my bump to pick with that. I'll have another episode with someone who wants to have that conversation but so I saw him in Chunking Express and I was like I think my worldview kind of opened up a lot in the terms of like oh so there are filmmakers that love to write about love and direct love and kind of have this passion for it because you know prior to that I was watching uh Michael Haneke films and he's anything but about the love <laughs> he's, <laughs> he's he's in i need to that rem- i'm like jotting down directors movies that i need to discuss speaking but, of uh, uh, you know older age narrative uh love narratives uh i can start. recommend the film a more don't don't <laughs> yes. start don't <laughs> talk talk about a sadist film about middle-aged love jesus christ <laughs> i remember when we said amour was a rom-com changed my mind <laughs> <laughs> oh god <laughs> let me tell you something if my man doesn't choke me out when i've lost my mind he's not my man i'm telling okay. you it's it's a love story and it's own it's it's michael haneke's version of a love story like that's the only kind of love story that he could make yes it is i agree i think that's that's his in the mood for love yeah exactly um which i think someone said it on twitter i can't remember now but i have to agree but anyways i think i just i fell in love with Wong Kar Wai films i mean and then i watched in the mood for love because i looked up tony's filmography and i'm like well i guess i guess i'm about to be a tony completionist hasn't happened yet um i'm working on gene hackman right now but it's like to see something so slow paced, mm-hmm. so opulent from the score to the cinematography to the framing of these characters, to see, I mean, the way, even the way when they smoke and you see the smoke kind of be contrasted. Oh, yeah, when Tony's character smokes and you see the contrast of the smoke. Yeah. With like a back backdrop and it's just like you're like oh like what else is there to say but wig i mean (laughs) wig snatched gagged gag gooped pooped the whole nine yards i mean (laughs) 
<laughs> I just I felt seen. Like I felt my heart the way I feel about ro- not just romance, but like the portrayal of love on sc- I mm-hmm. felt it on screen. I was like, oh wow. So yeah. There are people like me out there. Yeah, I think that like what I gravitate to in his films, uh, you know, and especially in the mood for love, is just the way that he uses uses the visual imagery to actually like show what the process of falling in love is like or, you know, being in love is like. Um like just even thinking about like the use of shadows and in the mood for love and the way that these characters are so, you know, we could say that their emotions are like what's actually being hidden in those shadows and the way that it's, I think it's really hard to, you know, it's hard to make, you know, silent emotions cinematic. And that's what he's able to do through things like, you know, like the tight framework and the way that, especially in this movie, you'll see, you don't ever see their spouses, which I think is, or at least you don't really see their faces. Um, You hear them off screen sometimes, but when that's happening, you'll only see, you know, like the spouse that we're invested in, in the movie. Um, So yeah, you'll see sometimes characters like talking to someone that's off screen for whole periods of time. You'll see periods of them just you know, kind of walking to that, you know, beautiful score that kind of just recurs throughout the film. Uh, Let me look up who scores. I always forget. It's called like Yumiji's Yumiji's theme, something like that. Can't remember exactly what it's called, but it's, uh, you know, when I hear it, it's I get like a fight or flight instinct (laughs) kind of happening because it's like, oh God. Michael Galasso scored in The Mood for Love. Check it out if you have it. It's very good. You want to cry. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's just that use of visual imagery to actually show, you know, the the silence of these people and the way they have this yearning. The deep reds in this movie are gorgeous. (sighs) The deep, I mean, the colors are just so deep and they do have those very like deep shadows. So actually, you know, show the way these people's emotions are kind of just very sublimated. Um, and I, when I watch films, that's what I really, really respond to is I'm thinking about how you're making or how filmmakers and actors are able to make, you know, silence like that and sublimated emotion, something that the audience can actually feel so deeply. Uh, and that's what, and that's what he's, Wong Kar Wai is just really good at. I mean, he picks up a camera and he's like, you're about to feel. You're going <laughs> to feel everything. What you haven't felt, what you're feeling now, what you're going to feel in three hours. And like, it's it's hard to do that. Like, it's to get you invested into two characters who, you know, by all definitions you don't really know that much about them except Mm -hmm. for this particular moment in time and you relate to them in these stolen moments and especially the slow the slow-mo shots of them going up and down the stairs where like they almost brush their fingertips or almost brush shoulders and it's like i don't know how does how do you even begin to comprehend 
that something like brushing hands can become so sensual and like mm-hmm. erotic in that particular moment. But like yeah. you said, I mean, he he uses silence as a tool, not as a you know, not as a detraction of what he's trying to do, which is he lets the actors do their work basically, which is very commendable because a lot of directors are very not a lot of them, but most of them are very like hands-on with their actors and Wong just seems like you know in that scene let them do how they feel between them what is it that you like about well if we're if we're going to contrast something like sensuality versus like actual like sexuality what is it that you gravitate to about sensuality in you know both in this movie and generally how dare you? This is my podcast. How dare you question me? My <laughs> I, I, I intentions. I want you to talk on your own podcast as well, because I I find your thoughts uh, extremely fascinating. So, oh God, said said no one. But um, <clears throat> <laughs> <laughs> well, to me, and I'm someone who strongly supports nudity and sex scenes on film and television like they are not retracting from the narrative and we need to wake up and grow up okay people have sex and it's normal it's part of life um people some people actually enjoy it uh and this growing taboo of sex is very frightening um especially if you read about fascism and its connection to purity but to me there has to be an emotional connection and mm-hmm. this is not something that everybody shares, and that's completely fine. But there has to be some kind of emotional connection between these characters, even if it's hate, even if it's lust, even if it's, like, uh, grief. Anything that connects people together makes me invested, and therefore anything that they do, to me, is an act of sensuality, and it's erotic. Mm-hmm. And I know that we've strayed away from a particular topic of a particular middle-aged couple. Um, but yeah, Ted Lasso and Rebecca Bolton from the show, the act of him baking with his own hands something for her and bringing it every single day, that to me, it's not just an act of care. It's like, to me, those that's something that can be so sexy. I mean, yeah. I think of like, Kim and Jim from Better Call Saul uh, after she has her accident and she can't make herself breakfast, he makes her breakfast and like we've spoken about this like mm-hmm. making meals for someone you care about is can be very erotic and like the same goes for like the way the characters in In the Mood for Love just gaze at each other with so much longing yeah. There doesn't need to be a visual penetration for me to be, <laughs> like, <laughs> I don't need to see it. Just be simulated for me. It's a plus if done well. Yeah. And it's and can be very, very sexy. And I, and I love that. But also, like, to me, those moments where, like, their hands brush or they gaze at each other or just kind of have this unspoken language. Mm-hmm. between two characters especially in the mood for love where there, so much of it is unsaid and a lot of it is just subliminal to me that's what's sensual about it also 
like the slow-mo shots for me that was Juan Carwai's penetration that was his <laughs> simulation of sex because it was very like charged and like you know what I mean like it's very slow and charged and it's like it's like a climax like you know yeah. it's building up and like people who get it get it and people that don't don't like I'm sorry I can't explain sex that to you but like <laughs> like the film is a gentle lover that's all the film is a gentle lover and it's a gentle love making it's an act of love making like i don't know how else to explain it but like you know shots of like hands on skin and it's slow and it's progressive like directors that do that Wong Kar Wai, i love you it's just it's a gift i mean some people just don't have that sensibility i guess mm -hmm. and it sucks uh but yeah what do you, Samantha Moya, consider? I'm a, I'm a big... Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with basically everything you said. I think what I... What I love about sensual cinema and, you know, movies like this is I think I'm, I'm just a really big fan of hands. Hmm. I love... Uh, you know, I, I love watching, you know, love stories when you know, two individuals are already in a relationship. There's obviously great value in watching, you know, a relationship, you know, build and, you know, work and, you know, across time. But the act of falling in love is, again, I said, I said this earlier, but it's, it is like an act of violence that's like happening to you. It's not fun. Like, <laughs> if you, like her, so like the last, ep I've mentioned Fleabag earlier too. Watch the, like the end of Fleabag when the priest gives that speech about how love is like, it's awful. It's not fun because communication does break down so much between people and you never know what another person is actually thinking and what they want or what they actually feel for you. And it really is like, you're just kind of jumping off a cliff. Like when you when the hands first brush and you have like that moment of, oh, this person is feeling the thing that I'm just feeling. Just fucking say it. Just say it. It's like, it's, what? It's, it's that like, energy. It's, it's two people who are like own their own isolated feelings of emotions and histories and past mm -hmm. traumas and all this, you know, good fun stuff that all of us messy individuals embody. And when you see two people come together physically, not even in, in sex, but just in bodies and body language and the way that bodies emotionally connect, to me, that's that initial falling, that's just really beautiful to watch. Uh, you know, and there's value, of course, obviously, into watching that kind of relationship grow, but that watching that initial fall is just very it's satisfying for me as a viewer just to to know that that's possible and that two people can connect across all our barriers of communication and emotions and you know guilt and shame that we all carry and i freaking love it so that I that's I, that's my ad for sensual cinema <laughs> i think i just got incredibly horny right now listening to all that <laughs> I mean, Josh, your days, they're numbered, okay? <laughs> if I move to where you guys are, it's over. I'm sorry. Drop those divorce papers because it's over. 
I'm coming for her. (laughs) (laughs) Every day I'm like, let me threaten Josh. (laughs) I hope you keep this in the podcast. Everyone's going to be like, who the fuck is Josh? (laughs) Well, I guess we have to introduce him now. Josh is Samantha's husband. Samantha. Oh my God. Sam. You just full named me. (laughs) My God, your government name and your Catholic name. How dare I? My Christian name. My Christian name. <laughs> My sister in Christ. Anyway. <laughs> um, slight pivot from... <laughs> but hands. Hands. I mean, it's an incredibly underrated thing. It's hands on screens and like touching and hold- holding hands. I'm sorry, but we need more people holding hands on screen like this is ridiculous i shouldn't have to be asking it should just be like understood amongst the romance community of writers which is very limited as i'm learning um we need more of your characters holding hands because this is getting ridiculous and we need them to be old people like i mean i think that this is why you know period dramas endure to this day because we're so you you know like you could watch it like a a Jane Austen adaptation and for a lot of people I think you know us included like the like the hand flex that Darcy does in Prejudice like to me that's like sexier than if you know I saw if I saw like you know two people banging like that was (laughs) it's it's sensual cinema i mean i like to think that full frontal john berthel is uh sensual cinema i wouldn't Mm -hmm. mind you wouldn't mind saying that (laughs) i mean i just i i can't even think about it because it's like it's too much but um yeah that pardon the language that motherfucker darcy set the bar very high with mm-hmm. that hand flex like i think it's just because the gestures are loaded you know mm-hmm. it just takes you there you see a hand flex and you're like oh he wanted to yeah grab more and it's like oof i don't know what it is about longing i guess it's like wanting what you can't have kind of thing yeah i think longing is just i mean i think that that's the perfect word to describe like everything that we've just talked about is longing longing and yearning and it's just it's such a human universal thing to just to just have desire to have mm-hmm. sublimated desires and not even you know either feeling like you can't act on it or feeling guilty for acting on it um whether that's, you know, something that society has put on you or is something that you've just felt, you know, within yourself. Like uh, you're socially conditioned to feel that way? Yeah, exactly. Like you're socially conditioned to feel that way. I learned uh, that phrase today. Actually, <laughs> last night. Uh, and, again, like as an audio, as a viewer of, you know, narratives of all kinds and especially love stories like this, um, it's just, you know, it's nice to feel that we all have these emotions that we kind of 
have buried deep down and emotions that we want to deny ourselves like no one like like i said like no one wants to feel that violence of falling in love it's very fun in a way but it's also terrifying and it's <laughs> you, i mean you, it's it's a such a weird thing where it's like like i like having a crush is <clears throat> thing in the world like it's it, it can feel like a reason to get up in the morning sometimes like you don't even have to like be with that person or even think that you ever have a chance of getting with that person but just like having like a crush is like death by a thousand cuts death by a thousand cuts but it feels so good like you just you know get to it's see that thing yeah exactly and it feels horrible but it also feels great at the same time and it's that thing that is very I love watching it on screen and obviously a lot of other people love watching it on screen uh I think that it's it's very universal it's it's nice to see that other people also have uh the capacity to get like bowled over by a single emotion (laughs) (laughs) you are such a sadist (laughs) um yeah, I mean, it's it's a very, I haven't personally felt it, you know, in that intensity, mm-hmm. but through fiction and characters and narratives, I don't understand, because now it's a trend, you know, like, oh, these kind of, like a film like In the Mood for Love, I f- I feel like people would just be like, oh, it's the people falling in love. And mm-hmm. it's like, when did we s- start being so skeptical and like dry about romance? And like, because first of all, in my most humble opinion, romance hasn't been done well often enough for us to be like, oh, we this is this is a trope that we don't need anymore. Or like it's pedestrian and like one dimensional. And, like, it's a given. It's, like, you know, it's, I I think, like, as a writer, I don't think it's an easy thing to land. Because, (laughs) and I feel like writers are sometimes afraid of, like, going there because they know that they think that they're going to fumble or, like, not do it well. Mm -hmm. But I think what you said about the longing, I think if you're able to toe that line and keep your audience there, but give them kind of like that closure, mm-hmm. that's where, you know, the bulk of these narratives are. And like most romantic narratives haven't done that quite as often. Well, so what do you think about the fact that In the Mood for Love kind of denies that in the end? Because as far as we know, these people never even kiss, much less uh you know consummate that love and as far as we know you know when the film ends they they do not end up together they have you know a few past a few moments where they miss each other even after he moves to singapore um yeah so so how do you feel about the fact then that it's it essentially denies that wish fulfillment we have for these people to be together to me there's no greater validation than knowing that they both feel the same thing for each other. Yeah. You know, that that love resides in them and that the narrative says and acknowledges to the audience, yes, they're in love. They wish that they could be together and 
we see we can chronicle that journey of them falling even deeper in love and even after where like you know that they're still thinking about each other to me that validates the whole thing and like yeah because their love is not dead you know it's like Mm -hmm. oh it's, it's almost like it's only the beginning even if they don't consummate it like you know that person is out there in the world and holds your heart and you hold their heart kind of thing. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I think that's what defines the poignancy of In the Mood for Love, I guess. Just like telling your audience like, hey, yeah, they're in love. And it's, I like that it does show in its own way that romantic love while, you know, obviously often involving sex it's not solely just that it's so much romantic love it's just so much bigger than that and i think that sensuality actually gets at the fact that it's not just about it's about a lot more kinds of physicality than just Mm -hmm. like the act of sex it is Romantic love is physical, also just like in a lot of different respects, Ways. like yeah. like holding hands, like just the mm-hmm. gentle act of of touching someone just to comfort them or to let them know in a kind of physical communication that, you know, you see them, that you accept them, that you care for them. Uh, and I think that films like In the Mood for Love, because we do never see that. And I think believe it's also the case in brief encounter they never are able to they never consummate that relationship Mm -hmm. um you know it does go to show that love can endure in a lot of different ways even just beyond you know a consummation of an affair and you're kind of yearning for it the whole time Mm -hmm. when you're watching it but you realize that when you get to the end like you're sad and it's like if it feels deeply tragic in a way, but it also still feels like a great love story. Mm-hmm. And that's like I think that's something that only Wong Kar Wai can can do effectively on screen. Like it, it's it takes a very good filmmaker, I think, to make that so deeply felt between two individuals because while parts of it, a sensuality, are very cinematic, there's parts that I think are, are harder to portray cinematically, like like those sublimated desires, like people kind of missing, like kind of like cross-communicating. Um, all that stuff, I think, is a lot harder to do, and he does that all very well. Yeah. I mean, it like having these conversations like Wong Kar Wai it does feel like Wong Kar Wai is having a conversation with its audience through his films and in the mood for love that conversation is how do how do we engage with romantic love and how much of it we've reduced to just the physical act of love making and mm-hmm. sex and how that's just one of the pieces of many other things yeah, that create a relationship in a romantic one. And I think also something very like symbolic of In the Mood for Love is that they trust each other. And not a lot of relationships, especially romantic ones, have that kind of trust. Yeah. Because, I mean, even now you have 
you know, whether you check your spouse's or your your um, partner's phone to see if they were texting someone else or you feel like you need to know where they are at all times or like it's like they're they're most romantic relationships especially straight heterosexual relationships the foundation is not on trust but on control you know yeah so in in the mood for love he he and she don't pressure each other into like consummating their relationship it's just they acknowledge that they feel these things for each other and they know their limitations and they don't push those things because they respect and trust each other mm-hmm. which is not something that is seen a lot in romantic narratives especially between straight couples um which is what I think we're missing in the conversation just culturally of how we engage in romantic relationships. Like, I mean, you have people that are like, oh, your your spouse is your best friend. What do you mean? It's like, what do you mean? What do you mean? Like, of course, like, who else are you going to trust and confide and laugh with and and respect? And, you know, like, love isn't just, like, having a kid together or having sex or um living in the same house like it's it's a lot of more nuanced and intimate intimate things and intimacy basically and vulnerability i think it's very i I love that you brought up trust especially exhibiting trust between you know heterosexual partners when you know so often it is more about control Mm -hmm. uh And I think that, yeah, like what's special about these two in this movie is that they do have, I think they do have so much respect just for one another as individual people and they let each other make the choices that they want to. Uh, You know, like he could very easily have been angry that she didn't want to come with him or Mm -hmm. come with him to Singapore at the end of the film. Um, or he could have been more like berative of the fact that she didn't want to, or, you know, try to convince her that, or they could even have tried to like convince each other that, you know, oh, our spouses are cheating on each other. So why aren't we, you know, why aren't we being equally as awful or, you know, Mm -hmm. why aren't we, why aren't we giving into our desires if they clearly have, but they have so much respect, I think, for each other's boundaries and for each other's each other's own individual journeys, um, you know, both within that relationship and outside of it. I think that they they genuinely want each other to do well. Like, I think she's, like, very supportive of, like, his, like, his martial arts series that he's doing. <laughs> and the way that they, because they do have a very genuine friendship, and I think mm-hmm. that that's why, or it feels even weird to call it a friendship. It's more like like a weird companionship where they're kind of, almost thrown together just because they're often so lonely in such close proximity that it's kind of like, it's kind of like that thing where like you're like, if you're, if you are sitting with another kid on the sidelines during PE or something, it's like, Oh, you're the only person I have here to talk to. So I'm just going to talk to you. If you're like the only other person in a fandom with like one other person, you're like, Oh, I guess I'm forced to talk to this person. <laughs> But, <laughs> I mean, they find that they really like each other, obviously. That's how 
That's how um, we met. That's how Sam and I met. She saw me <laughs> in that lonely little Hannah Waddingham fandom. She's like, well, I guess I'll talk to this flop. <laughs> She's the only one left. I was like, I, I found the other Ted Lasso bitch. <laughs> Kin. <laughs> Back uh, in the day. <laughs> no, there was a... No, I mean, because it's actually funny that you say that because I feel like you already had like a lot of friends and I was just kind of like, can I tag along? I don't have any here. <laughs> I was like, yeah. I mean, I was like, I love friends. Let's let's do this. You guys want to talk about pegging? Like, <laughs> uh, anyway, <laughs> these two people just kind of, you know, they come together and they have a friendship that companionship. I kind of hate using the word friendship because it doesn't feel like a friendship to me. Uh, How dare you redefine friendship in this podcast <laughs> in this moment? They have a companionship where they, it's a companionship built kind of like on a weird thing because they, they both know that each other's spouse is cheating on them. So I think they're being very like gentle with one another. Mm-hmm. Like they just kind of want to give each other space and room to make the decisions that they want to make. And they're kind of just like supportive of each other. And I think it's from that that their love actually blooms because they find someone who just sort of genuinely cares, not because they even have to, but just because they want to. And that's really beautiful to see. And then it's beautiful to see the way that they just kind of, you know, let each other go at the end. I guess maybe you could say that they could have fought for each other, which, you know, in its own way could be something beautiful. But I think that they also were just able to acknowledge that, you know, it's a tough situation and they can't force one another to do something that they're not comfortable doing. And it's tragic in that way because you think maybe if they could have fought for each other, this could have been something. But in its own way, it was, even if it was fleeting. Yeah, I guess we we do know what those Greek tragedies we're doing back then we got it i guess <laughs> sam any final parting thoughts on in the mood for love in life love fandom your sweet little boys uh by sweet little boy she's referring to my dogs <laughs> i don't have like a harem of men in my <laughs> Yeah, Josh can't handle the competition. I mean, the ground will shake the day I go to Colorado. The day I go to where you live. (laughs) No one's going to go get you. Yeah, no one's going to go get you, Link. Uh, Let me see. Final thoughts. I I love this film. It's probably in my top five movies. Like, if I was to take five movies, if I only had five movies for a desert island this movie would probably be at least in my top 10, if not my top five. I think that it's, it's a singular work of art in that I cannot think of very many, I can't think of a single film like it. I could think of only a handful of films that actually portray similar themes well, which we've talked about in this podcast, like Mm -hmm. Brief Encounter. Uh, I would also throw Carol in that mix. Um, God. Remains of the day. Um, God. 
And again, those are just like a handful of films that I think are able to tackle subjects like this well. And I think that In the Mood for Love is chief among them in being able to portray a relationship like this. I just also think it's just a beautiful film to watch. I, I'm enraptured by the way Wong Kar Wai uses color in his films and the way he uses colors to reflect emotions that characters can't talk about or feel like they can't talk about. Um, and yeah, it's, it's rare to see a director that is so invested in love stories of all different kinds. He has such like a wide range of films that tackle different kinds of love stories, both, you know, heterosexual and homosexual, and they're all gorgeous and beautiful. Um, thoughts on life? Um, I hope that everyone is taking care of themselves. Life is yes. tough. Uh, <laughs> Be kind to yourselves. Love the people uh, who love you. Hug some dogs. <laughs> Hug some dogs. You uh, see a dog? Hug <laughs> <them>. <laughs> You know what Any to do. Dog. Even a stranger's dog on the street, just go up to them and hug them. Ask them their name. <laughs> Cute. Uh, yeah, what are your... What are your final thoughts on In the Mood for Love and Juan Carlos and his illustrious filmography? It, it's just, it makes me angry because it stirs up so many comparisons in me mm-hmm. with the things that are lacking in our media landscape. So it's like, God damn it, writers and creators of films and television, what is wrong with you? Like... You know, and it's it's such a shame that romance is dismissed. It's, I mean, clearly, for the people that have not read a book ever in their life, don't understand that romance is gendered and has been used against women since mm-hmm. its inception and seen as the inferior genre. And I think there's been both a resurgence and also this Puritan mindset of how we express romantic feelings yeah but Wong Kar Wai he just like he he basically says yeah I can show you nudity but I can show you something even better than that you know yeah even more poignantly and I don't think he's someone that's like yeah delete the sex scenes they don't drive the narrative forward it's like you know, sometimes, like, we don't need a narrative to be driven anywhere. Sometimes it could just be a scene that exists between two yeah. characters. And not a lot of modern, you know, contemporary now directors, writers do that. Um, romance is still a uh, C-list genre in the eyes of a lot of creators. Um which is why he's so important as a filmmaker because he does kind of he is one of like the world's revered. top yeah. revered auteurs of our lifetime that is like just invested in these kinds of stories when I think other I don't want to say other filmmakers look down on them or they're just not as invested in them or the filmmakers that are just aren't as revered for one reason or other or they yeah. just don't get any projects made maybe because studios just don't want to make them but it's like also, like, a lot of directors, they're like, I want to make the best horror film. Or I want to mm-hmm. make the best, like, 
biopic or Marvel film or like that's the trend. And it's not surprising that it's two women that are talking about romance narratives and films and like it it is it is um you know a mindfuck that <laughs> Wong Kar Wai is one of the most revered filmmakers and his it's like Douglas Sirk. His mm-hmm. bread and butter was the melodrama. Oh and we can't we, we can have an whole other podcast if you want to talk about fucking Douglas, Douglas Sirk. <laughs> fucking Christ. Let me Part tell you something. I tried not to drop any F-bombs, but you brought him Douglas fucking Sirk. Samantha Moya, thank you so much for joining. Let's talk for reals. I don't know about this name, but it's going to have to stick. Uh, join me next week for my next episode. Um, I would say what it is, but I can't because I'm unsure how scheduling is going to go. But join me every single Thursday. Um, I'm committing to a weekly podcast, so I'm insane for doing this. Uh, Sam, thank you so much. Have a wonderful day. All right. Join me next week on Thursday for a new episode of Let's Talk For Reels.